Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are still on air, as uh, we promised we would be. They're going to have to, you know, forcibly restrain me from coming into the studio. However, the rest of my team is not in the studio, of course. We are social distancing as best we can, but I have Dr. Linden on the line. Can you hear me, Dr. Linden? Of course I can, Dr. Shane. Good morning. How are you there in that big room? I'm lonely. But it's good to have you there. <laughs> and Dr. Ray's on the line too. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It, it's warmer in my study than it is in the studio. I'll tell you what, I was freezing my butt off coming in. I was surprised at just how uh, how cold it was. And of course, the we like to keep the equipment here nice and preserved. So it's usually about five degrees in the studios of Triple R. But um, it's good to see your faces. We're doing this via Zoom, of course, um, to keep as far apart as we possibly can. But uh, good to see your faces and good that we can still broadcast some science. So how you, how are you both faring? You know, we're going going pretty well. I'm I quite like working from home most of the time. So it hasn't hasn't been too bad. And the weather the last couple of days, look, it's not nice when it's cold, but it's very uh, fascinating to see. We had thunderstorms roll through yesterday, lots of rain. We've had the same amount of rain so far this year as we did up to November last year. So wow. It's a bit miserable, but it's also really good um, for the soil and for the dams. So yeah. I don't know. Today feels like a good day. Maybe good yesterday, day. not so much. Today feels like a good day. Dr. Ray? Um, well, when the weather was warm, I was really enjoying working from home. We have a roof patio. So sitting out and, and you know, work on a nice, in a nice sunny day. It's still work, but it feels nicer. Yeah. I think we have to be careful. We People creep into that state where working from home becomes work infesting your home. And you've got to, you've got to still know where to draw the line. I know speaking to a couple of colleagues over the last week, they've said, you know, their couch in their lounge room used to be their place of relaxation and now it's their place of torture. And uh, that that separation is, is going away a bit. But hey, we're doing what we need to, the, to keep going. And I have to say, for those of us who, you know, still have jobs, we're very lucky um, compared to many in the community, a very large number who don't. So I'm quite happy to work um, from anywhere. I'll work from my car if I have to, if it means keeping a job. So I think that's an important thing. Now, we're going to give people a whole lot of science today. Uh, we have a, a couple of guests coming on the show um, via Zoom a little bit later, but let's start with some science news. Dr. Linden, do you want to start us off? Of course, Dr. Shane. So I can say this from the safety of my own house, make this confession. When I was younger, I was a bit of a boy band fan. Hello. I know that might shock you both, <laughs> uh, but, you know, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, I, I was into it. I loved it when I was a teenager. And so this past week, I don't know if you have uh, procrastinated as efficiently as I have trying to find some positivity online, but when the Backstreet Boys um, reconnected virtually to virtually seeing their 20-year-old 20, 20 hit, I Want It That Way, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was such a heartwarming video for me to watch and I'm very grateful for the internet for it existing. But 
A new study this week has found that it's not just humans that can synchronise their vocal sounds like this, not just groups of male humans that can do this to woo teenage hearts. Um, There is another animal that can do it as well. Do you guys know what animal it might be? Boots? No, but I'm wondering if they're less or more intelligent than NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> you take that back. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be birds, isn't it? Come on. No, it it's not birds. Crickets. No, not crickets. I give it up. Is, yeah. It's dolphins. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Um, a study from the University of Western Australia this week has found that bottlenose dolphins in Shark Bay, groups of male bottlenose dolphins, coordinate their vocal sounds. They kind of sing, not sing, they click, I suppose. They pop. They make pop music together to try and um, coordinate their coercion of fertile females. So we know that lots of species can synchronise things to try and lure a mate, but this is often done competitively. So crabs will, you know, move their claws or fireflies will flicker. That's kind of competitive. They're trying to out out sparkle each other for the female's attention. And then there are some other species that do work cooperatively, but that often happens in couples, so males and females together. Hmm. Dolphins are kind of unique in that they work as, they can work for a long time, they have a lifetime kind of boy band gang that will um, work together physically to corner a female or to coerce a female mm. together. They'll swim together. But this is the first study that's shown that they can actually vocalise together as well. So these researchers took about two years' worth of acoustic information from Monkey Maya kind of region around Shark Bay and they analysed it and they found it 172 different times when these groups of males would either synchronise their sounds or make them overlap with each other. And the, the clicking sounds that dolphins make are about 600 beats per minute, which is pretty fast. Mm. So this is another, you know, I keep thinking about that Douglas Adams uh, Hitchhiker's Guide idea where the dolphins disappear when things get tricky, but these dolphins are still here and they are, they're singing a lovely tune for mm. their ladies, it's which fa- I thought was pretty nice. Yeah, it's fascinating research. It doesn't give you any excuse for your boy band obsession, though. I think uh, this is completely <laughs> separate to that. <laughs> I didn't say obsession. Did I say obsession on the radio? Uh, I don't you think say I did. T- 20, year, 20 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's all good. It's all good. We've all got that. I, I was listening to Rocket Man by Elton John on the way in the car. So, you know, we- we're going back to the stuff that makes us feel familiar and at home, I think, at-, at this point in time. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Right now, a mental image of you singing Rocket Man in your car. But um... hey, people were loving it on the street. <laughs> So uh, going along with learning things from sound, uh, we, this is a group out of France that has been listening to the sound of soap bubbles popping. And I kind of went, why on earth would you do this? And this is actually, they're trying to pioneer a new field where they're trying to build on something we know happens, but we can learn a lot more from the sound of it. So if you have a rotating blade, it could be a helicopter, it could be a plane or a flapping wing. What's happening is that sound is produced because you have a a mechanical object interacting with fluids. It could be gas, it could be a liquid. And it's that fluid moving around that actually makes part of the sound. And in fact, it's the forces with the fluid that actually create the sound. They'll call it an acoustic emission. 
And so there's this entire field of acoustodynamics where this research group from Sorbonne University in France believes that you can quantitatively figure out the forces acting on the object just by listening to it in a very careful way. And they said, well, if this actually works, they think this, they could use this technique to understand, say, the sound of bubbles rising in magma to understand how volcanoes uh, erupt or actually use the buzzing of a bee's wing in air to understand more about the dynamics of how a bee flies. And so to prove this idea, they said, all you have to do is, is have, an op- have something that happens with a fluid and listen very carefully. And so to prove this, they listened to soap bubbles bursting. Hmm. So these are, you know, and, 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 and a soap bubble is actually, it's, it's two films. It's, it's water caught between two layers of soap. Uh, and, and this is exactly the same thing of you blowing bubbles. Now, they did it a little more routinely, but all they did was they very carefully listened to it. And when I say this, this is not as if you are meditating in the woods, listening to the leaves, wind go through the leaves. They're, this is actually kind of the sound equivalent to high-speed photography. So if you think of, if you've ever seen those commercials where you see a water balloon pop in a high slow motion and you see the balloon wrap around the water and then the water kind of moves, this is basically what they did with sound for a soap bubble. And in fact, when you pop a soap bubble, you hear two sounds. You hear the gas leaking out of the bubble because the pressure in the bubble is higher through the hole. And then you hear the liquid move and recoil around. Now, they, they plotted this as scientifically rigorous graphs and plots and used a lot of math to decouple this. But in my mind, I imagined it as a kind of a <laughs> happening is two sounds, right? Because you, and, and, and from the sound of the, the, the air moving and then the sound of the liquid recoiling, they figured out how thick the bubble was and how much liquid was there and how quickly it moved. And so what they were able to show is they, they, they're, they're creating a, a physical tool that uses a, a lot of modeling to be able to understand what happens with a soap bubble. And, and so by proving this for a soap bubble uh, and, and setting up this method of kind of high-speed listening, they're able to, they're ready to move on to much more complicated systems where, where they think they could actually apply this to, to places where we might care a little bit more. Soap bubbles, we always know mm. they popped. Mm. The idea of buzzing of a bee's wings kind of sounds kind of interesting in terms of being able to use sound to quantitatively measure things about how fluids interacting with solids is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's fun stuff. That's fun stuff. I love, I love uh, whenever you bring sound into it, there's so much uh, information contained in the sound that we often don't even hear that uh, can be used, which is pretty cool. Hey, uh, I'm not going to do a piece of news, but I'm going to give a, a lot of useless Dr. Shane facts for people that uh, I thought were fascinating that I've come up with over the last week and, and some things that, uh, some recommendations to help you along. So first of all, for your mental health people, I've cut the number of times I've looked at news sites down to 320 a day. I find if you can keep below that number, uh, you should be okay. Um, so anything above that and you're going to really affect your mental health. So don't check the news sites more than 320 times a day. Probably probably more like three times a day, I suspect, would be healthy, but uh, I'm struggling with that. Hey, I also found out this really cool thing today. I was, I, I've got this story, which I might do later in the show or next week if I have time, but I was looking up how much optical fiber uh, for telecommunications is being laid at a given time because it's, you know, our telecommunications system is spreading so rapidly across the planet. It's incredible. And the speed at which fiber optics is being laid is best given in the sort of speeds we use to measure aircraft travel. And currently it's being laid at the speed of Mach 20. Wrap your head around that, folks. If you want to know what that means, it means there are about 14,000 feet per second 
of fiber optics being laid across the world. We're tuning that stuff out pretty fast. So anyway, that was a useless piece of information. Has that gone up in the last few months? Uh, well, I don't think it's necessarily gone up in the last few months. The usage has probably gone up in the last few months because there's a lot of fibre that's actually called dark fibre that isn't being used. It's actually you know laid but not being used to its full capacity. So I, I suspect the usage has gone up phenomenally. Um, but the other thing I would, I would suggest to people is when they're looking at the news and especially some of the science articles, if an article has any of these phrases in it, you probably should look look at it with some scrutiny. And that is uh, words like could, might, should, shows promise or encouraging, um, especially when talking about cures for COVID-19. If you see any articles that have these words in them, just, just put that one on the shelf and come back in three months and see how they've gone. Because we have an incredible ability that over the years, uh, scientists have been doing this in many of their press releases. You know, this is a very encouraging potential treatment for cancer. And with, with many things, it doesn't matter to do that. But at the moment in a pandemic phase, it's very, very dangerous to be using this sort of terminology and putting out false hope. Because what happens is you find um, people are buying up on drugs and things that are not necessarily effective that other people use for for certain conditions. So, for example, one of the malarial drugs is very commonly used to treat lupus patients. And if you go to any pharmacy at the moment, you'll probably find it very difficult to find that drug. I'm not even going to mention the name of it because I don't want to promote the fact that this is necessarily a treatment for COVID. But these these particular pieces of information coming out, please be sceptical of them if they use could, should, maybe, encouraging, unless they say, you know, slam dunk, done, finished, over, you can buy it tomorrow. Please be careful. Sorry, Lyndon, you were going to say something? Oh, you know, Dr. Shane, it's funny. I'm seeing a similar thing when it comes to reporting about COVID and climate change. I wanted to come in today with some information and maybe some silver lining about what's going on. But just like you say, there's so many coulds and shoulds and mights. Uh, we are seeing a massive drop in plane flights, about 80%, I think, across the world, and also a huge decrease in pollution levels in lots and lots of cities, particularly for mm. nitrous oxide, which has some very clear health benefits, which is good. But not only is the science of this particular situation nowhere near done yet when it comes to thinking about how that will affect temperatures and climate in 2020, but the science of how the contrails and the different uh, emissions that aeroplanes put up high in the atmosphere, how that affects mean temperature on the surface is also really uncertain. There's low confidence kind of across the board in what the models suggest, what the observations suggest. I'm not sure if you remember that after um, September 11, there was some studies out saying, oh, we had a, an increase in temperatures after those three days when the planes were grounded. That has since been disproven. And so there's lots of coulds and shoulds of mites, people trying to find something positive, but we need to make sure that the science remains rigorous through this, you know, even though we're trying to find the word encouraging, we have to, we have to make sure that we're being careful. Yeah, no, it's a really, uh, it's a really important point. Now, folks, uh, we're about to speak to our first guest uh, very soon, so I'm going to say goodbye to my two co-hosts and bump them off for others on a, on another Zoom call after we take a bit of a music break. Dr. Linden, Dr. Ray, thanks so much for calling in, and um, we'll chat to you again soon. Take care. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right, thanks, guys. 
Triple R. And on the line now from California, from LA, we have Professor Sarah Majarid. She's from the University of Southern California. She areas of expertise are very, very interesting given our current situation. She teaches social media, misinformation, science communication, online professionalism, etc. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Glad to be here. And it's good to have you back. We spoke to you some years ago, I think, uh, when you were sort of just starting off at um, University of Southern California, haven't you? You just, you just moved at that point. I did, yeah. I think um, when we talked, it was actually my first interview um, while at USC. So lots changed since then. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about what you teach there, because um, this is not something that we find at many universities, but you, you're actually legitimately running quite a detailed program in social media and online etiquette and a range of things, yeah? Yeah. So my appointment is definitely very unusual. And um, I, I have appointments in the School of Engineering and the School of Medicine at USC. And my focus is in social media and science communication. So I teach the course Social Media for Scientists and Engineers in the School of Engineering. And it's really this great class that deep dives all of these different topics and the issues and opportunities in using this technology um, for STEM audiences. Mm. And then at the medical school, I tend to focus more on online professionalism and how physicians should be presenting themselves online. Okay. And uh, what sort of things fall under the idea of misinformation? I mean, what, how much time do you have? Yeah, well, actually, this is something I really want to talk to you about because I think it's fascinating, especially at the moment. You know, there's there's a lot of misinformation going around, and people are really unclear about things. But in, in let's start off with your course, course. I mean, with the medical students and so forth. What sort of misinformation things do you get them to try and avoid? Um, with the medical students, it, it's more or less focused on online professionalism. Um, I don't have them for long enough to deep, deep dive some of these more nuanced topics. But um, in my course in engineering, I do have a section on misinformation. And I really think that the phrase, the, the term can be a little bit misleading. So I like to put out a definition. Misinformation is incorrect information that is um, conveyed and the sender may not know that it's actually misinformation. So unintentionally spreading um, some facts that they don't realize is actually not true because they may not have the background or expertise to evaluate the methodology of a study and come to the conclusion that there's, there's some issues there. Mm. Whereas disinformation is um, information that is maliciously spread and okay. it's done on purpose. Yeah. So. so so when you look at, um, say, what's happening at the moment with COVID-19, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you must see examples like just vast quantities of examples of both of those, those you know, misinformation and disinformation at the same time, yeah? Absolutely. And I think the current situation is really difficult because information is changing so rapidly. Our understanding of um, COVID-19 today is a lot different than where we were, we were at three weeks ago. So communicating around um, uncertainty is something that requires an expert in communication. Knowing what phrases to say and um, letting the public know that what we know now is going to be different from a week from now. Mm. 
And uh, one of the things I found interesting, and you you deal with this a lot with your the sorts of coursework and things that you put out on Twitter and so forth, is scientists have sort of struggled a bit with this for many, many years. So, for example, if I was to say to an average person on the street, is coffee good or bad for you? They could, they could cite many, many press interactions where a scientist has said, this element of coffee is good for you and this element is bad for you. Now, with something like coffee, that's kind of benign. It's not a really big problem. But when we talk about things like you know, climate change, we talk about things like, like COVID-19 and what you should and shouldn't be doing, these things suddenly require that level of communication to be far more precise and far more forward thinking. Yeah. I agree with you. And that's why it's super important for anybody in science and medicine who is going to be communicating around these topics to be very well informed. And what I say that because I've been seeing a lot of people who have jumped into the conversation and have expressed opinions, but they haven't been clear about saying that this is an opinion. And the public can look at something like that and confuse it with facts. So I always advise people to make sure that an opinion is clearly stated and also provide um, references to your sources. Mm. I mean, one of the things I've found interesting lately here in Australia is we have this thing we call the four square meter rule. I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but in terms of social distancing, I mean, I'm mainly doing my social distancing by the fact that I've been a Star Trek fan since I was 15. And that, that pretty much keeps people away like that. I find that the most helpful thing. But um, but our government's put in place this rule of four square metres. And the part about that that I find challenging is that there are very few people who remember that part of their maths education to work out what exactly four square metres looks like. And mm-hmm. in fact, four square metres, if you think of a you know two metre ruler and another two metre ruler in, in uh, sort of the other direction, is a very small space. Mm-hmm. Um and yet that communicating that is doesn't seem to me to be an effective measure of getting across the idea of, you know, keep away from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So instead of saying, you know, four meters, maybe the best approach would say the distance of, you know, something that everybody knows. Um, yeah. That would be a more effective way to approach it. Yeah. And the square meterage thing makes it even worse. Like if you just said to me, keep two meters away from every other person, I'd be like, okay, that makes some sense to me. Or three meters away. Mm-hmm. But um, but four square, you know, not allowed to have more than two people in a four square meter area. All of a sudden that's, yeah. I'm thinking, is there a volume equivalent? You know, like is, is it, is right. it, uh, you know, is it uh, you know, nine cubic meters that I'm not allowed to have more than three people? You know, where, where do we go mm-hmm. to there in terms of the communication? Because these are things that are really important. And Definitely. it's, yeah, and, and you, you only have one chance to get this out. That's the other thing I think we've got to be careful of is, you know, you often only have one chance to get this information out. So. Absolutely. So using analogies and then also um, if it's, if it's a commercial things that would make sense and are visually appealing and easy to remember, that's really the key. Yeah. So let's, let's leave COVID alone for a few minutes, but what other things in terms of some of the medical misinformation and so forth have you been going after? Because I know this on Twitter, every now and then you just grab something and you just go the throat of that, you know, to try and pull it down and say, Hey, hang on, this is, this is potentially harmful. 
Yeah, so my latest one has been with chiropractors who are currently practicing in the United States who are called vitalists, and they have been pushing content that is very concerning. Um, they've been saying that if you get your back adjusted, your spine aligned, that... Um, then you'll you'll boost your immune system. So there's been a lot of issues with that because they've been um, designated as essential healthcare providers. So their offices are allowed to stay open. And seeing things like that, I'm very concerned with it because you know we're all we're all stuck at home. We're bored, and if we see something like that, it might be um, you know very very attractive to want to go and do something to get out of the house. So. Mm. Um, that's been a recent issue that I've been addressing online. Yeah. Are there no sort of regulatory bodies that sort of call that stuff out? There have been, yes. And it's because people are bringing more attention to this, there's more light on it. And I've seen a decrease in the number of um, people who are posting about this. And what's nice about the field too, is that there's been this sense of policing their own. So um, mm. chiropractors who are more evidence-based have actually been calling out these issues as well. Mm. And, and what other examples can you give there of, you know, some of the great ones you've, you've sort of had a crack at lately? Let's see. What else? Um, there's, I've gone after unprofessional behavior um, from the medical community in cases where it's been harmful to the public and jeopardizes the public's trust and and excuse me, in medical professionals. Those, um, I think they have lasting impact and there are cases that just really can change the dynamic between a healthcare provider and the public. Mm -hmm. So I, I really see issues with that and try and um, bring attention and identify what the problems are. Yeah. How should um, medical professionals and I suppose scientists as well engage through mediums like TikTok and so forth? I can imagine there's, you know, these online video forums and so forth. I can imagine there's a lot of stuff coming out from doctors and so forth that, you know, especially commentary about patients and their work, their daily work, which, you know, mm -hmm. we all like to go home and talk about our work to our colleagues and our family and so forth. But when it starts going online, that changes that dynamic quite a lot. Is that is that something that's becoming more and more of a problem? Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly like you said. In the past, it would just be something that um, a physician would discuss with a spouse or a friend. It would stay offline. But now, thanks to social media, um, these types of commentaries are now on places like TikTok. And seeing that, you know, I, I'm sure that whoever's posting it doesn't mean any harm by it. They're trying to be funny and just say something that, um, you know, they, they see on a regular basis. However, they don't really take into consideration the fact that the public can see this, even if they have followers that are all in the medical community. If it's, if it's out there, anybody can see it. Anybody can find it. And I try and add a perspective of being outside of medicine that when I see these things, I, I tell physicians and medical professionals that, look, this isn't professional. This is content that is really going to harm your reputation and um, impact your, um, your ability to practice medicine. Mm. And, and for scientists who are sort of 
you know, more and more engaged now with social media. I mean, how, how should they be engaging in a way that's sort of beneficial to their career? I mean, it's one thing to just sort of rage against the machine and so forth on a daily basis, yeah. which I think a lot of people do. And that's, you know, that's that's one avenue for doing that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a bigger version of the water cooler. But um, in terms of the professionalism of scientists, how should they be using social media to advance what they they do? I love the scientific community on social media because most of the time I really have to provide encouragement to get them to be posting because they're so afraid of doing something Mm. wrong. And um, where I start with that is trying to figure out who the audience is, who are they trying to reach and um, why do they want to reach them? So oftentimes it's a very different strategy if they're doing um, outreach to the public versus wanting to conduct inreach. And I think it really comes down to figuring out which platforms are um, where your specific audience is. So Twitter, I'm biased. It's my favorite platform. So I always try and convince scientists who are looking to expand their professional, excuse me, their professional network to start there. Hmm. And and in terms of um, in terms of the sorts of things they would actually do, I mean, scientists. If you think of their normal daily lives, you know, they're in the labs, they go to conferences, they apply for grants. I mean, how much mm-hmm. of that sort of overlaps into the Twitter space and the the social media space? How much of that can they do, or, or can they, I suppose, change their their activities as a result of social media activities? Well, I think that the social media activities can actually lead to new opportunities. I think that even three years ago when we first connected, it was mm. because of um, you found me through through Twitter. So it's a great way to um, find new opportunities. But if you are sharing your research online, then people are going to be aware of it. They're going to know that you are an expert in this area and that you can um, be somebody to contact in the future. And at conferences, it's it's just amazing how easy it is to use these conference hashtags and take an online interaction and actually move it offline where you can meet this person and network at the actual meeting. So it's really a powerful tool, I think. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm on the line with Professor Sarah Majarid. She is from the University of California. She's bunkered down somewhere in LA. Still there, Sarah? Yep. I'm still here. Still there. Um, you don't have COVID 19, do you? No. Good. We were hoping to speak to Kara Santa Maria today, but she contacted me early this morning and she is not well. So we wish her the best and we hope it's just a cold, but um, the situation is pretty yeah. grim in the US at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we'll watch watch that one. Now, we, we uh, had a bit of a chat earlier uh, last week and we were talking about the differences between how scientists are using social media and how they might have interacted in the past with like like a radio interview like this or television, live television, radio. I mean, what, what do you see as the primary sort of differences there and what, what do they have to look out for? Well, I think scientists now have an incredible amount of control over their messaging thanks to social media. In the past, having to go through a radio interview or um, a, getting something out in print through a journalist, that requires a buffer. 
But with social media, everybody has a platform. Everybody can reach an, a wide audience. And for scientists in particular, I think this is powerful technology. Because I often talk to folks who say that they've been burned or have had unfortunate um, interactions with journalists where maybe something has not been translated correctly into um, a news announcement. And that can follow people for their entire career. Having social media, they, scientists can now um, present their information in a way that they choose and have complete power over. Mm. I, I suppose one of the things you, you have to be careful of is even in doing that, though, there's an element of how much emphasis you put into what you're going to say and what you're going to do. And I know when people come into my studio, you know, especially PhD students and people who are relatively young, they're often very nervous and they're very cautious about the, what they say. Whereas I've seen how quickly people can tweet things out. And there's even though you have that control, there is a tendency to do things very quickly and very reactively, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And because... You know, if you're tweeting, you're not seeing that you have an audience of many hundred or thousand people is there. And so I think we we can tend to forget that and get a little bit too comfortable with these online environments. So making sure that there's this awareness and, you know, um, a message once it's out there, it can be screenshot, it can be shared that can also follow you forever. So it's it's important to always maintain a certain level of professionalism and really think critically about how much information, how much personal information you want to be providing about yourself. Mm. So we're all moving into this space with the pandemic where um, whether you're at primary school, high school or, or university, things are going more and more online. I mean, what's your perspective on that? It, it, I mean, it seems to me as though there are some things that will work very well online, but there's a lot that will be really problematic. I mean, you're, you're obviously moving into a space of teaching your programs online. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think about this shift? I think that it's not going away. This is just the start of it. Um, more companies and schools are going to be taking advantage of this technology. So it's going to be very important for everybody to establish some level of comfort and understanding of the technology. Um, it's funny that you asked that question because yesterday I was just exploring some um, new technology and um, creating a, a module about this because we're going to be, this is the new reality for us now. So. Mm. And, and do you think, um, I mean, I, th I suspect there's some things like the idea of 600 students in a lecture theater has always seemed a bit daft to me, you know, on, on the best of days. So I'm, I'm quite happy yeah. to, I mean, there's two parts there. One is that many people in the room is not that engaging. And even if you have a great lecturer, it's generally not engaging. The other thing is a lot of the lecturers I had when I were at university, I'd frankly rather see a video that I could skip through of them because they were dreadful anyway. So I think there's some good reasons for things just going online. But the, the smaller group teaching, it seems like we should try and, you know, get back to that at some stage or at least mimic that in, the, in a way that's that's reasonable because that's where people often have good memories of of their university experiences yeah absolutely i think everything that's digital whether it be social media or these zoom meetings is never going to replace the value of having these face-to-face -face, um, engagements that is always going to be um i think the best way to interact with people yeah now sarah what are you doing at home there to uh, keep yourself sane in lockdown what am I doing? I'm working on a couple research projects. Uh, I actually have here in my living room a puzzle that's a thousand pieces I'm going to be doing. Um, so, yeah, 
keeping busy and tracking things on social media to develop new case studies. So it's been, it's been very productive. Yeah. And, and are you still calling out things like, uh, you know, one of the things at the moment I'm finding really interesting is this issue of to mask up or not to mask up. And, you know, it seems to be very, very varied information. And this is where at the moment, I think the public is starting to get very confused about what they should be doing. You have some governments saying absolutely everyone should be wearing masks everywhere. And then other governments saying, no, 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 this is, this is not right. Only the sick should be wearing them. And others are saying, in fact, not even the sick should be wearing, you know, just people in medical facilities should be wearing them. I mean, where, where are you seeing the, the issues there? And like, I mean, where, what do you think about that? Is, is it something there's any clarity on at the moment? No, I, I think there's absolutely zero clarity on this. And because the messages are so different between the different agencies, the different political leaders, and even um, scientists and physicians, it makes it really tough to identify who is a trusted source on this topic. So at the moment, um, I, I think that there's so much uncertainty around it that it's difficult to comment one way or another um, what the appropriate steps should be. Mm. Can you um, do us all a favor? I know a lot of our listeners will probably be following you after this, but can you tweet out some trusted sites for us in the next other day just so we sort Absolutely. of know, know some that are good to go to? Because I think, um, you know, on some of these issues, obviously the, the jury's still out in some areas. I mean, I was reading an article this morning from, um, I think it was a researcher at Stanford who's done calculations that, um, you know, the, the particles that potentially cause problems can travel up to nine meters. So the sort of mm -hmm. the the sort of three to five foot or you know several meter distancing was inadequate. This person was saying, and that nine meters was was the go. And I thought, gee, that's a that's quite a distance. You know, that's quite a distance. But you know, you, you know how fast things exit your body when you cough and sneeze. So you know, maybe that's mm -hmm. that's possible. So. I think, you know, the, the, the sort of good salient advice is as much distance as you can possibly get from other people and stay at home when, whenever you can. The mask issue seems to me, I worry that, you know, some things like that can give you a false sense of security that you, you're okay because you're wearing a mask to be closer to other people, whereas in reality, you're probably not. So I think there's a, there's a logic to, to physical distancing um, as opposed to just, you know, some of these other mechanisms. We, yeah, and, yeah, and that's why communication is so important because just as you said, you know, it's going to be important to wear masks if that's the way that the pub, our leadership wants to go, but then knowing not to touch the cover, knowing how to put it on correctly, mm. things like that make a difference as well. Yeah, we're going to need some pretty spectacular science communication for some of those to be to be workable and to be to be valuable. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. On the line now, we still have Sarah Majarid from California, but we also have Tara Lynn Camerlieri Carter, who is a PhD student from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Welcome, Tara. How are you going? Hi. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks for bringing your interview forward. We were originally interviewing you next week and we had to make a radical quick change and uh, very much appreciate you giving up your, your time today. Uh, how is it being a PhD student in the middle of a pandemic? Um, well, luckily the PhD so far has probably prepared us a, a little bit for some uncertainty at least. But yeah, no, look, it is... It is all very uh, stressful for everyone, I, I guess. There's no sort of getting around that. Um, but 
at least for myself, I'm in a position now where I am going to be able to stay home and get some writing done. So, you know, hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully people aren't, uh, that's, that's the extent of how people are affected. If you mm. sort of, and you, you have to put some research on hold, that's probably the least of your worries at the moment. Yeah, indeed. Now, you're in the area of evolutionary ecology. Can you unpack that for us? I think most people understand what ecology is, I suspect, but unpack the two of them for us and how they fit together. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess I sit within even a smaller kind of niche, which is nutritional ecology. So what we essentially do is um, apply sort of evolutionary theory uh, to these nutritional issues. So um, I guess it differs from looking at nutrition from a medical perspective in that um, we're actually looking to see how these things might affect uh generations um, rather than individuals, although we look at individuals as well, um, look at um, what evolutionary uh, pressures might be involved or what uh, outside of genes as well might be passed on. Um, and we, yeah, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much covers it. So, so what you're saying is you're, you're looking at, is this done in humans? Is it, is it enough to have just one generation to look at that evolution or do you have to look at something that has many, many more generations like, you know, insects or mice or, or whatever else? Yeah, so I, I work with fruit flies. So I guess the, it, it's, very, it's very tricky uh, in humans. Uh, I guess the investigation is different. In, in fruit flies, to do something like this, um, we would set up sort of experimental evolution where you would subject the flies to different conditions. And yeah, you would sort of do at least that 10 generations um, if you were looking to see um, how those pressures or whatever conditions you put those flies under might actually uh, affect their fitness indicators, their their reproduction, their lifespan, um, or any number of, of traits that you could measure. Um, you you can also look at one or two generations depending on what you're looking at, which is which is actually what I'm doing um, because I'm looking more for um, things that probably have epigenetic causes or fall within what we call phenotypic uh, plasticity. So I'm not sort of trying to experimentally evolve my flies, but rather look at what, uh, you know, what the the generations might pass on other than genes, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. And, and in, in terms of that, so, so what are we talking about here? If, if one fly in one generation has a certain dietary restriction or something of that yeah. type, what exactly is happening that allows that information to transition through to their offspring? I mean, I can imagine yes. – so let me, let me just sort of wrap that up a little bit more. I can yeah. imagine if there is a, a problem with really poor nutrition and there's a really unhealthy fly that its offspring might be unhealthy. But I think you're talking about something different, aren't you? Well, I'm yes. Yes and no. So I'm talking about both of those things. So, so yes, you, if you subject so, – so as I do, uh, and mine is focusing right now on sugar. So if you subject uh, the parents or the grandparents in the generation to, say, a very high sugar diet, um, what we're trying to find out exactly is how that will affect their offspring and grand offspring. So depending, of course, on the diet manipulation, whether it's high sugar, like you say, whether it's a poor diet, um, you have certain flow-on effects of, of that happening. Um, so yes, in general, if you've got a poor diet, you, you may have poor offspring outcomes, but not 
not always um, and not necessarily in the ways that, that you expect. So um, there are questions around whether or not it's more beneficial to have a diet that matches your parents or matches your grandparents um, or whether or not that, that doesn't hold up. At the moment, it, the jury is still out. It, it may not actually hold up. Um, so, yeah, and the other thing is what's the optimal what the optimal diet is for the parents may not be the optimal diet for the offspring health um, in terms of things like lifespan and reproduction. Mm. Sarah. So this is such an interesting area to hear about. And I'm just wondering what your experience has been like communicating um, discoveries with the public and if you've had to be particularly careful um, about expressing your findings. Um, we were just talking about the, uh, um, coffee and how some studies have said that this is life-changing. It's something that's super beneficial. And others say that it's um, a carcinogenic, which I think it's been categorized here in California as such. So yeah, just curious to hear your take. Yeah, it's, it is very tricky. I think especially with something like transgenerational effects, um, you definitely don't, and, and working in fruit flies as well, you don't want people to uh, come out of that thinking that um, they can blame it. <laughs> they can blame it all on their parents. No, but I think that you you don't want people to come out with the, the incorrect impression. Um, the diet that somebody eats themselves is always going to be the most important. Um, and what we are actually looking at are, you know, very um, small changes or small underlying uh, things that increase or decrease um, predispositions or risks. Um, so yeah, it, it's in the nutrition space in general. Um, as you were talking about before, there is a, a you know a lot of problem with trusted sources, and there's a lot of sort of pseudoscience that goes on. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Tara, uh, I'm not sure if you can even answer this question given the the work on the flies. But as a as a male, how far before I'm involved in the conception process does my diet affect what I could pass on? Is it is it weeks, yeah, so years? Do we know? So really, really interestingly, um, there have been studies done in, in human males um, and it finds that at least from a correlational perspective that just prior, so, I, so obviously to your lifestyle before conception is, is going to lead to whatever your BMI or your, your state of health is, but um, what has actually been looked at is um, just prior to conception, the BMI of a father prior to conception can predict the BMI of his later offspring mm. at, at some points in their life. Um, so too can can a mother. So, I mean, look, that's that's probably, I mean, it's still correlational. Obviously, we, we can't yeah. sort of do manipulations in, in humans, of course, but, um, yeah, the, it is still uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, um, Tara, it's great talking to you today. It's fascinating stuff because I think there's this whole issue around how our environment overall affects the long-term evolution of species. And, and some of these things, as you say, they're subtle, but they must compound over many generations in certain senses as well. Um, you have scenarios where, you know, with ongoing dietary restrictions of certain minerals and so forth, you get all sorts of issues creeping in. Uh, good luck with your, your PhD. How long have you got to go? Um, well, given given everything up in the air, but it should be you know around uh, less than a year. Oh, fantastic! Well, that's great. Sounds like you're in the in the home stretch, which is a probably yeah. a good a good place to be during a pandemic. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you take care and stay safe and stay away from everyone that you can possibly interact with. And um, and good luck with the research. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and Go Go. No worries, Lilty. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. And Sarah, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for, for doing it live from California. I'm guessing it's Saturday night, so uh, it big, is. <laughs> big night out planned or just staying at home? Yeah, just staying in, working on my puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> working on your puzzle. All right, good luck. Thanks so much, Sarah. Right. Good to chat to you, and hopefully we'll chat again sometime soon. Thanks. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Folks, uh, it's been an interesting show there with uh, everything being done via Zoom, but uh, I think uh, today... You know, we show that we can do it. Hopefully, in the coming weeks, we'll be able to have a a redo of uh, last year's 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. Um, it will be a challenge, but I think it's one that we're willing to take a crack at doing. Hopefully, all um, all online via Zoom, if I can push all the buttons at the same time, being here by myself in the studio. But uh, thank you so much for listening to, to Triple R. Remember, it is April amnesty period. So if you can support Triple R, get on the Triple R website and please do so. It is exceptionally important at the moment that you uh, lend your support to Triple R because we, of course, are not doing all the things that we normally do um, for revenue, which means um, you as individuals uh, keep us on air. That being said, uh, us broadcasters still coming in. It's a very lonely place. There's only a few of us around, but uh, we're making sure that the shows that you like are still going to air. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much uh, to you all for listening to another hour of science. We'll be back again next week. We've got a whole range of guests coming up. Everyone's very excited about being on the show, even though they can't physically come into the studio and we've got some great science for you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.